Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. The idea of Zhang is you capture the terroir of wherever it's made because you have the biome that has the bacteria and the fungi in it. You have the water from where you are. You know, like each Zhang has its own signature. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. A writer, editor, illustrator, cookbook author, children's book author, and really fun guy to get to know, Joshua David Stein really has all the goods, and we welcome him back into the studio. On this episode, we catch up about all things cookbooks and food media, including his soon-to-published Korean cookbook, working with Tom Colicchio, and his work on the wonderful Esquire Best New Restaurants list that just hit. It's so great catching up with JDS, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Joshua David Stein, welcome back to the This Is Taste. How are you, man? Uh, I'm doing well, Matt. Thank you. Just, I want you to come back every year. I enjoy talking to you. I'll come back every week if you want. We could do a weekly. We could, we could, we could work you in. Let's just have a daily podcast. <laughs> you and I just calling each other and shooting the shit about cookbooks. I'll be Michael, Mikey Barbaro. Oh yeah, Michael Barbaro. That guy, that guy, is he cool? I, you think he's cool? I like his voice. Yeah, his voice is great. Uh, Let's talk about a lot of topics because you do many things and uh, you're an editor, you're a cookbook author, you're a musician. Um, I want to start with Esquire. Uh, You just named the best new restaurant of the year. And um, I want to ask you, it's you and Kevin and Jeff. And Omar. And Omar, right. Omar too. So you have four four of you traveling the country and uh, zooming out. Like what's exciting about restaurants in the U.S. right now? I don't know if there's one trend which is exciting to me. That's not what I'm asking. Absolutely not. And that's yeah. tough. That's a tough question. I meant more just in yeah, the tone. General. Something that I've noticed, which is exciting to me personally, is that not so much in major cities, but in kind of secondary and tertiary cities, a lot of what I think are the best new restaurants and what we name the best new restaurants are the products of pop-ups or like dinner parties or non-traditional ways of establishing restaurants, which I think also has happened in New York somewhat, Mm -hmm. but also in other parts of the country, um, which I like because generally I think you can have a certain type of great restaurant with a lot of capital. Like there is a genre of restaurant, like an impressive big restaurant. You've named one of them, we'll get to it. Yeah. In New York, it's very clearly that. Yes, but then there's also these other voices of restaurants that are not crowd pleasers on paper. And the idea that these couples, interestingly enough, I mean, oftentimes they're, you know, life partners as well, that they've pursued their passion and parlayed that into a sustainable, well, mildly sustainable business. Some of these guys close. Yeah, but 
but at a real restaurant, that's really exciting to me because then you get these ideas and and real human, real human restaurants. Yeah, and and that don't require the capital that maybe um, some of the places do. And and these tertiary markets are not as expensive, so maybe it's just a product of that too. You named Brooklyn's Elis as your restaurant of the year, and I've not been. Uh, I've, I've met. What's up? Nothing. What'd you say? I said loser. I know, right? Loser. <laughs> loser. You didn't get that text from Mods? Yeah. Mo- yeah mods didn't hit me hey, on Hey, Matt, the- what's up? Mods is cool, actually. I-, I was in Mexico with Mods once. That's a story for not the podcast, but this is the restaurant of the year for Esquire. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Well, um, Mods? Mads. Mads. I-, I said it wrong. It's- well, I don't know, because I say Mario, and my kids think I should say Mario. You should say Mario, and <laughs> Why? Mario. Okay, Mario. Okay, Mario. Mario. Ma- Mads. Mads. Yeah, Mads. So Mads is um is a co-founder of Noma, which is a restaurant. Yeah. And of note. Of note, yes. And he has a partner here named William, who's like a front of house dude. It's this restaurant in Greenpoint. It's in terms of like square footage, quite large, but the kitchen takes up most of the restaurant. Um you eat on three sides of the kitchen. So it's very much integrated. The dining area and the kitchen are integrated and extremely open. Il means fire and is means ice in Danish. And the menu is bifurcated between things that come out of the fire side, which has a smoker, and things that come out of the cold bar or raw bar, Mm -hmm. the ice. Um, But as is befitting kind of Mads. It's visionary in many different ways, some of which you see on the plate and some of which you don't. For instance, they have a labor practice called One House, I think, where instead of there being dedicated front of house employees and back of house employees, the cooks, everyone cooks, and they're on a two-week rotating schedule between whether they're in the kitchen or whether they're out on the floor. So you get people who... Amazing. I mean, it's cool to articulate it that way because it's cool like to rotate in and out from front and back. is just modern. That hasn't really happened on this level or with this kind of um, being able to encapsulate it in words and explain it the way they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of challenges and hurdles to that. You have the sort of atrophy of knowledge of those... of going in and out, you know, like doctors, when doctors change shifts, you know, there's some um, knowledge is lost. Uh, I think for them to navigate the tipping uh, and labor laws was quite difficult, but they put in the work and I think it, it does make sense. And you feel it when you're in the room, when the person who's giving you your your clam, that they have their sea clam, which earlier in the day they had sealed the inside with beeswax and, yeah. you know... They had been doing the prep, and then they they have made the dish, and they're intimately uh, knowledgeable about it. It's none of that stuff like, oh, well, chef has decided to do this, which I hate. Right. It's just like some – and it's also – which is so I hate that. I also really don't like the such polished service that feels – it feels like a one-way street. Like, yeah. like I'm going to be – courteous and hospitable and you're like well you're not looking at me as a person in front of you it's like i'm not into that so. no and and i was going to ask you about like this post menu a, a fine film from 2022 how how do you uh, look at a restaurant that with this high concept 
knowing this, like, we're in post-menu era I with mean, a straight face. Do you face. think the menu was that important that we're in a pre versus post the I'm, menu I'm era? I'm elevating this a little bit for the show for the sake, but I, I, I do think as writers, it it did, it really cut deep, you know, the, the satire about the way some of these um, orchestrations and some of these conceptual, the chef will do this, as you said, you don't like. But, like, it, it definitely, I think we are aware of it slightly more, potentially. I am kidding when I say it as, like, an era, but yeah. I, I mean, there is some meaning to it. Yeah, I mean, I love the menu. I Wonderful movie. That's it great. was, yeah, it's a satire. Yeah. So... I don't think it illustrated anything new. It just kind of was like the Jonathan Swift version of mm-hmm. what we always think about, about overly precious service and overly sort of virtuosic kind of chefs. Yeah. But Mads also, okay, so I think you have to like overall just buy into the idea you're going to go to an ambitious restaurant that takes itself seriously. Right. And I, I there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And like, I would never, I would never come across it that way. No, no, I I don't think you, I mean, but I think you do when you, there's tons of different types of restaurants and at, at the, in the Esquire BNR list, I think we try to recognize and see as many of them as we can. There is a genre of restaurant, which Elise is, which sees restaurants not simply as a place to get dinner, but almost as an agent of some sort of, an agent of change. You know, it is also serving dinner, but it's also much more utopian in a way than I think other restaurants are comfortable being. And I think part of that has to do with who Mads is and his culture, Danish, and his background, Noma, that he has the audacity to try something like this. Yeah. Let's talk about Fox Face Natural. Also a BNR. Right. Let's we're continuing on the list. And you wrote this blurb, so you clearly have a strong feeling about it. Let's talk about it. Okay, so Foxface Natural is the northernmost of a trio of restaurants on Avenue A, which I think are doing it, – it captures to me like the East Village spirit, like a kind of punk, fuck you, we don't care what you think spirit, and weaves restaurants into the culture surrounding it, which I think is important, and it's also delicious, which yeah. – it's not the most important thing, but in it's case, up there. It's, it's up, up there for there. your list making. So, what is the what are they doing? What, are, what kind of food? Fox Face is. I think people have called it like chaos cooking. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, people Eater has called it chaos cooking. I feel like I've called it new new American. It's just a completely Catholic ingestion of so many different influences that you can't really pinpoint any. You know, they have a kangaroo tartare. They have um, an amazing. I think. Fluke, which is just in the oven with parsley and olive oil and these potato coins, which I thought was yeah, <laughs> very much like that. Is, is this Dave Santos? Yeah, he's a chef. Yeah, so Dave Santos has been around for a minute, and, and you know, he's really got chops. Yeah, and the owners are, I guess, independently wealthy tech people, but not in like an evil tech way, maybe huh. like a less evil tech I'd like way. To, I'd like to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get them on the show. I'd love to hear so, about the, yeah, the independently owned non-evil tech people. So they are not as beholden to the market. And I think in this case, it really, it's cool. it really pays off. I'm going to guess Superior Burger is another of the Avenue A, but what is the third? Let's go over Avenue A. I love what you just said about uh, a place that I used to live at 7th and A for three years back in the early 2000s. And it's a it's one of the best streets in New York. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, 
Foul Witch. Foul Witch. Yeah, which is a Roberta's crew. Yep. What is uh, that? Foul Witch is, again, another sort of chaotic, it's super loud. They have this one dish, which I love, which is um, these long grapes. They're kind of mm-hmm. very oblong. Yeah, those are great. Uh, under a blanket of lardo, and it's warm, and the lardo is kind of like melting on top of the grapes. Uh, it's just that Superiority Burger and Fox Face are all examples to me of restaurants and restaurateurs leading the way as opposed to sort of like focus group restaurants, which again can be great. It's a different, it's a different beast. So the big place we were teasing um, earlier in the conversation is Teresi, yeah. which I've been to and had Rich on the show. We talked about a link to the show notes. Now, let me ask you, you know, you, is Teresi the kind of place that's going to be like Carbone and there's going to be nine of them around the world or is Teresi singular? Oh, you have to ask Rich. Yeah, it's true. It's not, You can't answer that question. But, but my, I, I guess, think Carbone is a hermetically sealed concept. It's a yeah. red sauce joint and it's a take on a red sauce joint. Of course, a red sauce joint has its roots in a specific time and place. Teresi, on the other hand, I think is very involved in the neighborhood that it comes from. They have, you know, a chopped liver um, and Manischewitz dish on the menu. Yeah. Which is like a, a nod to the Lower East Side. They have a Capoletti Cantonese, which is a, a nod to Chinatown. Yeah. Um, they have, uh, I think, Zeppelin with the ham service, which is obviously they're in Little Italy. It's also a nod to the neighborhood, meaning that like the average rents are like $6,500 and mostly lawyers dine there, it seems, from my assessment. You mean the clientele? The clientele is a neighborhood restaurant. When you say that, I I couldn't just help but think when I dine there, it's like a lot of like second or third year attorneys who are on resi. Yeah, I don't know because I didn't... I. Don't know how you know that, but yes, it seems like it could be that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's quite expensive. That's... Those places are always going to be expensive. But I also think that when the major food group are operating at their peak culinary, you know, in a culinary sense, no one can beat Richard Mario. Agreed. Mario. Uh, we were Mario. It's Mario. It's Mario Carbone. Yeah, Mario. It's Mario. That's what Rich calls him. So it's Mario. The inclusion of Oishimi brings us to an interesting uh, kind of topic of modern Korean cooking in New York. And um, I just want to get your sense of the scene. I mean, much has been written about these modern restaurants, but I feel like you would have a, a really nice point of view on this. Um, I mean, I think a lot of where we are in Korean cuisine, and of course you are very knowledgeable about this too, a lot of it's demographic. A lot of it has to do with um, the role of how Korean Americans have flourished in this country and when they came here and how they flourished and how they've assimilated in in some degree. Um, So who has a purchasing power to eat at these places like Naro, and Oijimi and Bomb and, you know, all mm-hmm. the list like Jumak Banjum, Dobar. Uh, Atomix. Atomix, yeah. So they're, they're mostly third, second or third generation. So they still have a very strong connection to Hanshik mm-hmm. Korean cooking. So to see, and it hadn't been in a restaurant, certainly hadn't been in a fine dining format very much. So to see their own cuisine um, ele- Elevated, I'm using air quotes, yeah. but like 
presented in a fine dining way, I think is immensely gratifying. Like when you go to Ouija Me, when I went, the front bar was a mix of ethnicities and the dining room was 100% Korean. Yeah. Which I think to me, I'm white, um, was, I don't know what the word is. Um, I liked it. Yeah. Good. It was good. <laughs> it was good. No, it was, it was, a, as a journalist, someone covers this very deeply. It was, a, it was a very uh, dy- dynamic piece of data. Uh, interesting yeah. observation. Well, it's, yeah, because it just means that this isn't creating a cuisine for another culture's delectation. It is yeah. for the people who, you know, yeah. it's for the community. One of the other reasons that Korean cuisine, I think, is flourishing so much is because that sort of like Confucian idea of Han Sheik, of the balance of the flavors and the colors is kind of like a new, for Westerners, is a new language and logic of cuisine. And I think that it's immensely satisfying to discover. And it is not overly abstract. And there's some overlap with like fine French cuisine, but it's distinct. So to see at Oijimi, you can see the kind of Confucian ideals of Han Sheik mm-hmm. plus a, a more Western approach. Yeah. Is you see like Onji Bokum done as like a, a small bite and with gochujang that is like very and we'll get to Jiang's, but very uh very different from the gochujang you would have if you were having in like a stew of so to speak. Yeah. And and I I think your point is so taken about how this uh, there's a familiarity with the service, right? If we've gone to uh, Danielle, we, we've we've had the service, but we've also experienced Japanese cuisine for years and years, and we know some of these tenants of East Asian cooking, um, raw seafood, we've uh, seaweed uh, based stocks, but then we're thrown Koreans' view of uh, of both fine dining and East Asian flavors, but in its own extremely unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think as anyone, as a a general diner or as a journalist, it's innately extremely interesting to see this exciting style of Korean cooking. Yeah. And I bring up Korean cooking with you, not because you're a fine observer of restaurants and you have great things to say, but you wrote a Korean cookbook and we're going to talk about it in the spring when it's out. It's called Jung and really... Joshua, I, I really admire this project, this book. And I know Mingu, your, your co-author. I know Nadia Cho, your co-author. Uh, I, I really respect all three of you. And I'm going to have probably Mingu or Nadia or you or all of you back in the spring to really talk about it. But just give us a little taste because you've given me the PDF recently, and I, I think it's fantastic. You've done a great job. Well, thank you. Yeah, so Zhang is a the first cookbook of its kind um, to – Focus on Chang, which is gochujang, which I think most people know about, which is a spicy pepper um, paste sauce, uh, spicy fermented pepper sauce. Uh, Tenjang, which is more similar to uh, miso, miso, but, but not really, but yes. But uh, not really, and I think Koreans do rightfully object to that. Yeah. And then you have ganjang, which is similar to, it's the, the liquid part of a fermented soybean paste, and that's similar to soy sauce. That's a general way Mm -hmm. to think about it. But importantly, it underpins so much of Korean cooking. Like, jong is the thing that makes Korean cooking Korean cooking. That, again, in Japanese, you would call it umami. In Korean, you call it gamchilmat, Mm -hmm. profound flavor. Mm -hmm. That fermented flavor comes from the jong. Yeah. 
So this is a book, I mean, I guess I can also just say that it's thanks to you that I wrote it because you hooked me up with the project. <laughs> I mean, I only sent one email in, but I figured you would be so down with it. I was very, you yeah. You ran with it. You all three, it's an amazing book. It's great. Um, and I think it was a challenging book in some ways because Mingu Kong, who has Mingles, which is kind of Korea's best restaurant, not an American chef. Not not in America. He's Korean. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't speak English. You know, perfectly. Um, it's not just another like introductory book about Korean cuisine. And there are some, and they're all, and they're very very good. And it's about a specific product, and not everyone can get this product. You can usually get gochujang, but denjang and kanjang are kind of hard to get from an artisanal way in the states. You uh, write these headnotes. I, and I love your great headnote writer, and, and we'll talk about some of the other books. But one I, I just stuck on was, quote, hummus is like the distant cousin of tenjun. Both are made from beans. Both are vegan. Both are astonishingly versatile. Tenjun hummus. You made a tenjun hummus. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, and I've never really encountered that. And it's, it's wise. It's really good. Well, I wish I could take credit for all of that, but mm. I really just, in this case, Mingu, you know, like— as I was saying, it's not an easy, it wasn't an easy book to get made because Mingu doesn't have a big following here and, you know, it, it's not the most common ingredient for all of those reasons. And at the same time, what you get from working with someone who's so deeply knowledgeable about this is he can be inventive and innovative because he has such a profound knowledge of his ingredients, in this case, denjang. Um, and he sees those connections. One is chickpeas and one is soybeans. They're both legumes. Mm-hmm. They're both kind of a paste. Of course, hummus is not fermented, but he he draws these connections, which I think are not obvious. And to me, I think the reason why I was most excited about the book is because I had just finished a book with Joe Campanale on Italian natural wine called Vino, mm-hmm. and my mind was in terroir. That's what I'm... I, I like terroir, just generally, which is also, frankly, why I don't like Carbone Provato. Like, there's no terroir there yeah. because it's just a sort of... Cap- the terroir, it's like the, basically, it's like a top of Namex black. Yes. That's what it is. There's no terroir. Um, but the idea of Zhang is you capture the terroir of wherever it's made because you have the biome that has the... Um, bacteria and the fungi in it. You have the water from where you are. You know, like, it's naturally fermented. So it's just amazing to me that there are all, are all of these jongs from different parts of Korea, and each jong has its own signature. Mm-hmm. The artisanal jong is like a very human labor-intensive endeavor, but regardless, you are cultivating a sense of place. Absolutely. And I have some jungs in my fridge from like two, three years ago, travels, and they taste so different from the yeah. the, the brown tub you're going to get at, at H-Mart, which is also a, a good product, too, not to undersell that stuff. No, it's a good product, but yeah, basically this book, I'm very proud of it, and I, and I, I hope it finds, you know, receptive readers because it opens up a whole nother world of expression. Let's talk about some of your other projects. Okay. Let's talk about Tom Calicchio. You've been you've been working with him on this book for a little while, and I think it's nearing the end. I would imagine because um, we talked about it last time. Uh, Maybe not. <laughs> I hear the sigh. But like Tom is such a dynamic personality, and 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 you know I've said it before. I think he's going to run for Congress at some point. I mean, he's got really big ambitions about his life. Maybe maybe not your 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 
have more insight, obviously. But anyways, what? How's the the Tom book going? Uh, Tom book is going well. I mean, it's a memoir, and you're right. When I was writing a memoir, right? When I'm when I'm writing a memoir, it's important to me that I think the other person likes me, <laughs> and it's very hard to know whether Tom likes me. So that was like actually quite hard to work on for a while. Then he invited me on this boat trip from uh, South Carolina. He bought a fishing boat and we we piloted it up to Brooklyn and then out to Mattatuck where he lives. Dang. Wow. That's, you wrote about it for Esquire, right? Yeah, I wrote about it for Esquire. Yeah, yeah cool. One of the reasons I wanted to go is because he was also inviting his friend, like his actual friend who he likes in real life. And I was kind of curious if he would treat this friend the way he treated me, which is not mean, but it's not like chatty, small talk. Yeah. He's fine with silence. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was equally silent to this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And it also made, so it kind of made me realize that, oh, it's just the way he is. Then I wrote about it for Esquire and I included right that whole aspect. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought it was a very good piece. I worked really hard on it. His only feedback was, um, we caught a fish. We caught a yellow fin tuna. And his only feedback was, it was more than 30 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But his brother, Mike, reached out and said, you really captured my brother. Yeah. So then after that, I think Tom saw, I got comfortable that he didn't hate me. And he understood that I also have a point of view. And then since then, we've kind of been working at a pretty good clip to mm-hmm. to finish the project. Uh, I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read it. Is it out in a few years then? A couple of years? Yeah, 2020, probably five. Okay. I don't know. You're also working on an, a, a follow-up with Kwame Nwache called All Hours. And I read the announcement notes and I was like, wow, this sounds... You're a longtime collaborator with Kwame. But this book sounds really cool. And it sounds like it's going to be... I, I hate saying the most personal ever because that's weird, but it's going to be pretty like in in the world of Kwame. Tell me it, about it. Yeah, well, I think Notes was obviously mostly a memoir. My America is his personal recipes, but also the recipes from kind of the diaspora, um, but kind of more focused on his family mm-hmm. and all hours. You know, Kwame is a super dynamic, yep. fun dude who knows a lot of people and does a lot of dope shit Mm -hmm. and i think this is just like more of a free freewheeling fun book the head notes are um it's told through a 24-hour period so is that your idea yeah it's a great idea yeah really smart i think it's a conceit is what you would call it conceit it is a conceit um just because you know i do so many cookbooks and i'm kind of reaching the limit of what is interesting to do (laughs) and how you can tell stories and head notes and how you can make the cookbook also feel like a work of art as well. And so drawing from James Joyce now. (laughs) 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 Um, But I just thought, yeah, telling his story about his actual life. And, you know, so you can have one day 11 a.m. can be a tuna fish sandwich and then you'll have like the dateline, like Los Angeles, 11 a.m. Like hanging a LeBron. Sure, that's one. But then also 11.05 could be another day in New York making, you know, a sandwich for his niece. So there's like, it's multiple times. It's not all one specific day, but it's like in his life, it's a multifaceted kind of 
cubist portrait of his life. No, and it sounds from with your reporting chops and your ability to capture scene and tone, and of course the recipes. It's going to like have a lot of like people in it, yeah. his world, and it's going to be you're going to be building the universe of Kwame and Wache. And I can't wait to read it. It sounds dope. It sounds I great. I can't wait to write it. How, well, how far are you along? Not far. So you're you're at like six a.m. right now. Six o. No, 6-0-5. we're not. No, I mean, to be honest, it's like I'm doing the Russ and Daughters cookbook. I'm doing Tom Colicchio's book. I'm doing David Nafeld's book, Dad, What's for Dinner? Um, we just finished Jong. Uh, I'm working on Greg Backstrom's book. Nothing matters with Greg Backstrom. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. Is that a pun or is that literally he's like a nihilist? You know, the real title I think is going to end up being Nothing Matters But Delicious. Um, <laughs> That's kind of a better title. No, to me, I think Nothing Matters is the best title okay, because, fair. well, yeah, it's a little... Greg's like a super sunny kind of guy, mm-hmm. um, but he's also like quite dark. And when's the last time you read a nihilistic cookbook? Uh, it's just like from a guy who has such chops like Greg, like he worked at Alinea, like he he he's an extremely talented chef. Obviously, he has Olmstead. Um, but he's like, yeah, you can fucking dry age this duck and score it. But it doesn't fucking matter. Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, it'll be delicious anyway. Just it'll be do... de- delicious fresh with a cure of, like, 15 minutes. Yeah, just do whatever the fuck you want. Okay, I, I mean, see. He's so talented and, and, and can think in this way that it's not so much about following the recipes as, like, the underlying um, logic. And then once you understand that logic, you can kind of do whatever you want. Or, like, oh, you, you overcooked your salmon. Oh, fuck it. it. Nothing matters. Turn it into a salmon salad. It's fine. Don't throw it. Just keep on going. And he's a kind of guy in his life who he's gone through significant like challenges. He just has always kept on going. Yeah. It's like nothing matters. So- I respect that point of view. And it's also, you know, it's kind of like breaking some like cardinal rules in some ways. Cause we we get into this like rulesy game with with food content. Yeah. With cookbooks, you you create pantries. Like these are the pantry items you need to have. It's like a rule. No, you don't fucking no, need anything. Nothing matters. And look, do you have crushed tomatoes? Great. Do you have two cans that are like kind of used? Okay, put them in. Do you yeah. not? You know, it's just like fucking relax. That's the title. Fucking relax. Maybe that's the subtitle. Nothing matters. Colon. Fucking, fucking relax. relax. We're we're workshopping here. A few more questions, Joshua. So, what book do you want to do? I mean, you you are approached all the time by agents and by people to write their books. But what about you, Joshua David Stein? Book do you want to write? Your name only on the cover. Um, not about food. Fair. Yeah. I think I'd like to write a memoir. I love it. I, you have a <laughs> lot of, I, I, I was like thinking about the follow up. I'm like, do I, of course I love this. You're, you're a great writer and you have a lot of stories and you've lit your young man, but I'm not that young, bro. Well, I mean, I don't consider myself old. And we're How like, old are you? I'm 43. What are you? Yeah. You're old. What are you? 42. We're old. <laughs> we're old. Okay. And we're st- older. It's not young. Young is the wrong word. No, yeah, that's right. Young is the wrong word. Young is the wrong <laughs> that's word. That does not describe us. We are older. Older men. Okay. Um, you've heard a lot here. You, listener, you've got made it this far. You've heard, <laughs> you've heard a lot. I just think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like many people, I want to write about myself and I've wanted to for a long time. And there's a part of me that just says, well, who the fuck are you to have the audacity to write about your life. No one gives a shit. And now I'm a little bit, I don't want to say confident, but I i recognize that voice of saying, who cares? Why are you so 
who like why are you so presumptuous to think anyone cares about your life or your stories? I recognize that voice as like fear. And I recognize that voice as a critical part of me, which is harmful in like many, many, many ways in my life. And this is just another application of that doubt and the sort of like self-hatred, which is in my professional life. And knowing that, I think I'm more open to, to just, trying it out to see how it feels. Yeah. But have you outlined it? I I mean I yeah, I have like various um kind of short I'm kind of thinking about it as interwoven essays or short stories as opposed to like a chronological yeah. um just like a regular chronological memoir. It's about sort of not quite making it, I would say, which is how I see Myself, you know. I mean, that's the that's the narrative, in, in I would say ninety nine point nine percent of writers, like yeah. people who work in editorial, yeah. Because there's always that next. I mean, re, like, who says they're at the pinnacle? I mean, maybe Graydon Carter, like he's like, yo, I got airmail, I got this restaurant, I got this place in France. He might be like, I'm yeah, good. But, like to me, it's a joke, by the way. By <laughs> Graydon about about Graydon Carter. Yeah. I mean, probably he would. But I don't. Like, he of all people would probably think that he. But did most make. writers, by nature, like I. I Kind of just about made it. Yeah. It's just like the way we all think. I think. I think it is. What do I think? Do I think I made it? I think financially I'm, I am a jobbing writer. Like I write for my living and I have a lot of work, you know, but in terms of my ambitions of like what kind of art I'm creating, what kind of, um, not just, not just professionally, but like, uh, what kind of father am I being? What kind of partner w- was I? What kind of, you know, like, not quite making it. You bring up financial elements of the job, and I and I want to circle back at a conversation we had last time, because we had some really nice notes from listeners last time, and I want to follow up. People listen to this? You know what? <laughs> we, 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 we have listeners, buddy. <laughs> okay. We got listeners, buddy. This isn't just some... <laughs> We aren't just at home on our Zoom. It's not just for us in this room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you your numbers later. Yeah. We'll see if this one's bigger than your last one. Uh, But anyways, we we did get some notes because it was, and and people like followed up because it was important. You talked about, you know, while being wildly successful in terms of you're prolific and you have lots of published bylines, it still is a super big hustle to use that word often to to, to get, to make it work, especially living in New York with with children and and all the uh, expenses. I just wanted to circle back and ask you, like, how can writers and creators be fairly compensated? I, I actually didn't ask you that follow-up last time, and I wanted to ask you that now. I think cookbooks, because there are agents involved, you are much more fairly compensated than other endeavors, um, which is also why I started to do cookbooks. or Why now that's what I mostly do. I think... For magazines and for online stuff, I don't see how you can make a living doing that. Even being a restaurant critic, even. <laughs> oh, including being a I mean, restaurant. there's very few who are full-time. I mean, you can name them on one hand. Right. Um, and even those, and there's just a lot of, like, gray area in all of that stuff. Um, I will say that for me personally the way that I've found to make more money is like, instead of being a writer, like I just, I just was the 
editorial lead for a big package for Eater on maximalism. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, I was super proud, super happy cool. to work on that. That model of compensation is much kind of more equitable than being a writer. Yeah. In terms of being a writer, I, you know, I still do a some freelance now. It's kind of like whenever I feel like I'm procrastinating, whenever I would need to procrastinate mm-hmm. doing books, I'll just pick up a freelance you'll gig. Pi- you'll pitch something or get yeah, pick up that. Like, just because it's like you know? a quick endorphin thing, yeah. you know? But I don't know. And, I, and I'm very successful. And I don't know how you would possibly make a living doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, the way I look at it is, like, I need to make X, broken down over a month or a year, I need to make X amount a day or, like, a week. And there's no way that you're, there's no way that if you're getting paid even something like $1,500 for an article, which is a lot of money for an article, mm-hmm. that takes a week at yeah. least. Yeah. If you're getting that kind of rate, you're, the expectations are, I mean, a week at minimum, I mean, it could be like six months of oh, answering. God. Yeah, you're like, fuck that now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just like in general from like when you file to actually gets published, yeah. there's like a million follow-ups sometimes. Yeah. And those are the bad experiences. We don't want to have those experiences. No. Right. Right. So I'm hearing like, you know, spread out your 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 discipline a bit, you know, take on the gigs that are more about like the project management gigs. Um, magazines are not as lucrative as books. Are you working in the private sector? Do you do any copywriting, any of that stuff? No. I mean, and I, right now, I don't think I have the bandwidth to yeah. do it. I would do it, but I am also terrible at making that transition. It's like, I don't know how you're a journalist and a writer, and then at some point you're like, hey, I'm talking to the marketing team. I'd like to talk to yeah. the whatever other team that pays you. On This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire, fast and furious taste. Check, Joshua, are you ready? Yeah. Your favorite New York City restaurant right now that you didn't write about in Esquire? East Village Ukrainian restaurant. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I line dance there on Wednesdays behind the restaurant. That's really neat. I've seen that on Instagram. I follow you, and I, I've seen you in the line dancing. It's movie. the most fun I've ever had. Yeah, but you you studied dance, right? You're a I dancer. Did. I did. I um, are you – that's cool. So what is it about country line dancing that, that makes you feel so so good? Well, it's queer country line dancing. Oh, cool. And just moving with other people. I mean, moving with other people in unison yeah. is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and like Especially when your belly is filled with like borscht and pierogi from oh. – It's just the most New York, to me, old New York restaurant. It's down a hallway. There's like – let the tourists have Veselka. The real ones go to East Village Ukrainian restaurant. Polko, I love that. The best dessert. Dude, I don't know. Something from, oh, you know what? Cafe Carmelini has a really good dessert. But really what I'm remembering is they have a a dish which looks like a bathtub with like gold, little gold limbs coming out of it. And the, mm. the belly of the dish is like cacao nibs. Mm-hmm. And then there's some chocolate shit on top. I don't fuck with dessert that much. Yeah. That's like a real pro. Because we're older. We're older. we're older we men. Break, we can't break it down. Our metabolisms are slow. Yeah, that's right. The best bread. Indian accent. Yeah. I went there with my kids the other day. It's a good restaurant. Oh, it's the best. Thanks for reminding us about that place. The place is great. Yeah. The best cheese. Cheese course at La Bee, which is... uh, Which is not La Bernardin. No. Which is like, everyone calls La Bernardin La Bee. It's kind of a weird name. 
Labie is halfway between Le Trois Chavaux, which was Angie Mar's old fine dining restaurant, and Beatrice Inn, which was her old, old yeah. casual place. So I think she's trying to split the difference. It's still quite fancy, yeah. but somewhat, but nominally more casual. And they had an amazing cheese course that happened some late date in the meal where I was shit-faced. But, but cheese, when you're having a few too many, is great. Now, is there a dress code there? No. They've, they've relaxed that. Yeah. Toshavo had that, and okay. Yeah. I gotta have Angie back on the show. She, she, yeah, she's she, the best. Yeah, absolutely. She's like a maverick, a pioneering in many ways, and and definitely pushing against the grain in many ways, um, and pissing people off along the way, which I think is good. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Oh boy. Oh, you know what? I think it's the same one from last time. Six seasons. Six seasons by Joshua, Joshua McFadden. McFadden. Oh yeah. I guess it hasn't changed, and I did ask you that last time. So shit. Yeah. I tried to not ask you the same question. No, I mean. I read that one. But you know what is the most satisfying these days is most of the recipes that I am cooking from are from the cookbooks I'm working on. Like David Nafeld's recipes are amazing. So instead of looking at a cookbook, I just go to the spreadsheet. Go to the doc. And I go to the doc. And like I made a ragu genovese, which was amazing. And part of that book is not only about making the dish, but about vacuum sealing it and freezing it. So now, like two Sundays ago, I got a huge 20-quart rondeau, and I made a, just an insane amount of short rib ragu genovese, which I've been eating, you know, constantly since then. So That's great. My favorite cookbook is the upcoming one called Dad, What's for Dinner with David Nathan. Real cool. And, and it's cool that there's, like, actually storage ideas in there, and it's being executed smartly. Oh, uh, yeah. Last one, your favorite sandwich. A tuna melt with mustard. And tomato underneath the cheese at SNP. Did that not get on any lists? I feel like that place came and went in a way that was disappointing that it didn't make it on lists. Or was that last year? SNP Luncheonette? Yeah. It didn't make it on lists. What list is it going to be made on? It's like it's a, fucking great. It's such a good place. I mean, it's like a, it's in the old Eisenberg Dude, sandwich. that Eisenberg food was, was not good. Sure. But SNP, I think I love it. I, I go love there it all the time. But I would not say it is like a listing. A, you know. I disagree. I mean, it's such an important place. It's it's like yeah, but like, what list would you want that on? Best new restaurant, because they were able to preserve many elements of Eisenberg's, but then bring like a really nice sense of culinary aptitude, and it wasn't just like basic shit. I feel like the, I've always had like the latke is really good, which I think is hard. It to It is do. very good. It's very good. I mean, like Kanish is good. Like I mean, they're not doing like weird filler crap. Like yeah, I feel like it should be. One of the top ten restaurants. Well, before. why don't you do a taste top ten restaurant? <laughs> we, it's not our game. We don't do. We, it's not like really our game. It, 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 we don't. We're we're like a national pub, and we don't have like we don't. We're not like a list making kind of operation. Well, the power is in your hands, Matt. Joshua Davidson, this has been really fun. Thanks for joining. This is Taste. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 